Welcome to your March 2010 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Jarrett Bro. Our theme this year is Imagine, and in the next hour, our goal is to open your mind to the endless possibilities that await you and your speaking career. This month, Joe Calloway's Category of One features a speaker who can make a grocery list sound like a great speech. On Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson gives us the inside scoop on why one speaker has a name tag tattooed to his chest. And Renee Godefroy updates us on the situation in his native Haiti and how you can help. To kick things off, I go backstage with Scott Halford, who presents an interesting idea about how he structures his business to keep it more profitable during tough economic times. While many of us build our business wide, Scott explains how and why he builds his business deep. This recession is actually, to me, I, I really like this recession because you get to practice. <laughs> and practice and practice and practice. And it's one of those things that allows you to feel what semi-retirement is all about. That's, that's what I'm discovering here. Some of you, are, of course, are, are, are saying, is he he's not talking to me. He, of course he couldn't be talking to me. I, I mean, I've had 90 dates so far this year, all in Hawaii with the insurance industry at their insurance little convention. Yeah, right. You know, we're not talking to you. I am talking to the other 99% of us who have had a little shift in our careers. Going deep and not wide means that we go into a few clients, maybe 20 in a year, and instead of going to them once, we, we work with them three, four, five times in a year, and we build a relationship that actually continues past the year. A lot of people who, who go wide will have 100 clients, you know, they'll do 100 talks, and then they'll have to do 100 talks next year with 100 new clients. And so for me, it, was, it just seemed like a lot of work. And the, the idea is that we wanted to build relationships. My business partner, Marty, and I just really decided that our model was going to be built on relationships that would be long-lasting and could take the body of, of work that we work in and actually really massage it and go deep and build a relationship that would continue way past that first talk. Multi-year contracts? Multi-year contracts. So we do one, two, three, sometimes four-year contracts. And we, what we want to do is we want to go into an organization, especially now when, when the recession has caused so many organizations to shrink in OD and HR and their training and all that kind of thing. They know that they still need this kind of work. They know that they still want this kind of work. But now they're overwhelmed with all kinds of other things, and we want to just be their solution. So we go in with this package and say, we've got lots of different pieces that will, will ba basically satisfy what you're looking for. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Just look at the whole thing. Look at all of the things that it provides. Look at all of the benefits from this, this leadership or emotional intelligence package. And you don't have to think about it again for another two years. Every time uh, speakers experience some type of a downturn in the economy, whether it's the current recession, whether it's post-September 11th, there is a certain degree of suffering from those who do the one-offs. How recession-proof are you able to make your business by having 
commitments for two and three years, regardless of what the economy is doing. Well, what happens is, you know, we're not we're not certainly um, completely recession proof. But what does happen is that we didn't freak out because we knew that we have a lot of things on the board. They just got shuffled. So they the the, the first part of 2009 was a time when everybody was looking at should we be having meetings out of just perception, right? It was that that whole rigmarole over, geez, we shouldn't have a meeting because it looks bad. So we had things push into the second, third, and sometimes fourth quarter. They're still going to happen, but they got pushed. So the the nice thing about having contracts and having those deep relationships is that we weren't wondering whether something actually was going to show up. We just knew it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of your speaking career and how much has been purposefully done versus how much was a profound accident that led you into a path of creating something that you didn't dream of two, three, four, five years ago. Just kind of made up, yeah. Oh, I, I think the made up part's always the fun part when you when you have things that just kind of happen out of out of you know serendipity. When I started in the business in 1990, it was just kind of an adjunct out of my television career. I'd been coaching anchors, reporters, and some business people for the camera, media blitzes, presentation skills. And then I thought, well, you know, I really want to be a keynote speaker. I want to make them giggle, make them laugh, make them want my autograph, and uh, you know, just have them have have audiences, you know, stand and 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 love me. That's what we all want. And I had a client. Uh, in about 1995, who said to me, you know, I really like what you said, but it it seems kind of thin. I think it's accurate, but I would love to see you prove it. And so he basically laid down this gauntlet that said, "Uh, I want to see if you can actually move, shift human beings, shift organizations with what you're talking about. Surely you don't mean measure. And, and oh my gosh! Yeah, there's this measurable piece, this that part that says, you know, if you're going to talk about this, and we're going to pay all this money for it. I hate when that happens. Well, I, <laughs> and, and the hard thing about it is, is that you know, especially when you've you've got. Um, the motivational talk, you know, we all believe and assign some kind of value to it, but how do you measure what it does? And if you can get your hands and head wrapped around the idea of measuring something, clients will pay for it if you can show that there is something measurable and it's measuring something that they want to move. And you you managed to monetize that uh, with piles and piles of products, training, testing. Explain this pile of stuff that you've created over the years. We affectionately in my company call all of our product stuff a pile. It's the pile of stuff because we had a client who said to us one time when we were talking to him about, you know, what did they want? He said, I don't care what it is. Just make it a big pile. It, it, you know, it's kind of the philosophy in corporations that, you know, if you, you it, thick is good. So if you if you come with a thick workbook, that's a good thing. It didn't really care what it was. But we decided that we would we would follow that a little bit, but mostly put into that stuff, stuff that we'd be proud of. And we created a pile of products that are workbooks. They are they are um, audio. There's video. There's there's self-work stuff. There are. Um, assessments and books. And so the, the pile includes things like that and then also the programming that goes with it. And so we amass this pile and then we parse it out. And so when we sell to clients, we say, we have this huge pile, but you don't want it all at once. And we will manage the parsing of it. And this is what it looks like. And this is how often you should get it. 
And so we basically dose it out to them and, and, and have this continuing relationship over a long period of time by dosing out the pile. And anyone can do it. It's just, you know, most people want to go in and, 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 you know, shoot the whole thing and just go here, boom, here it all is. I want you to buy the books, the tapes, the everything all at once. And we are, are really convinced that if we parse it, that their appetite is better. They'll still pay for it, but in a much different way. And tell me a little bit about how they pay for it. How do you structure pricing? Uh, do you go in and, and get this mammoth turnkey, or do you have some unique way of, of making them give you the mammoth dollar by asking for small dollars per employee? You know, it's interesting because everyone wants um, – they, they want it to fit their their – their bottom line and their the, how it is that they, they want to be able to, to to take what they do and fit it into their cost structure. And so some organizations look at it and say, hey, you know, we will, we're willing to pay a quarter of a million dollars for this pile. And there you go. That's rare. What most are willing to do are to are willing to do high volume. In other words, we touch a lot of people at a really low um, price per head count over a long period of time. So a lot of people, say 700 people, every month for four years. And there's a monthly fee per head over that long period of time. And so that's how we, we basically monetize the pile. In terms of the, the presentation piece, the workshops and the, the keynotes and that kind of thing, we add those as add-on adjunct to all of it. So it's just a, a, another way to massage this this stuff that we, this business that we do that is really pretty much intellectual capital. And, and how much do you do yourself? What is your role in this process versus how much you distribute to staff or contract trainers? So we have a group of associate coaches who will go and do the coaching piece. And I do the, the presentation part, the part that is in front of the client. Um, we have other people who help assemble the pile and pull that together, and certainly that is a, a, along with me. Obviously, it, it's the material that I deliver, so I want to make sure that it it is all congruent. So we have a number of different people who help sell it, who help who help deliver the the piece that's one on one, who help design software, who help design you know uh, workbooks and things like that. So it always looks good. It always looks like it's it's my stuff, but it's our stuff, and there's a lot of our in it. There are a lot of people who are involved in pulling it together. What would you suggest to other speakers uh, as to how they might convert what they currently do uh, to pull out the best lessons learned for you? What would you say your best lessons learned are? My best lessons in in the business overall are that – you just simply don't have to do it alone. There are so many amazing people out there who have really cool stuff that fits your stuff that you don't do, and they can become a part of your pile. And, you know, it, it, you're not going to get it all. And so it's, it's kind of the law of abundance. You just share, you know, everybody gets, gets to share high volume again, little pieces, and it adds up real quick. And, and I, I think that that was a hard thing for me at first. I thought I always wanted it all. And, uh, and that that's how it, how it worked. And it just doesn't work best that way in my mind. Jill Calloway's with me again this month for our segment called Category of One. And I'll be honest with you, Joe, uh, probably out of all the people in NSA, the guy that you picked this month just 
aggravates the living daylights out of me more than anybody else. He, he, he drives me absolutely crazy for the same reason, I'm sure. Because he's good. Oh, he's... And, and, and I want to be that good, but I'm, I will set my bar high enough. I'm never going to be that good. Yeah, I can't tell you over the years, I mean this absolutely literally, how many times I've stood in the back of the room when Mark Sanborn has been on stage and what other, whatever other speaker I'm standing there with, we look at each other and go, the guy is just so good. He, he really sets the bar for all of us. But the thing that I think is most important about Mark, he's not just good, he keeps getting better. Uh, his, his career just stays on an upward trajectory. And uh, he keeps growing his business. Well, let's find out the secret of how he does that. Mark, you've been able to not only become successful, but sustain that success and continue to grow your business and get better. What do you think is the key to sustaining success in this business? I believe the key to staying power in professional speaking is staying relevant. You may be older, you might have a different background, you might have a different point of view. Audiences will accept all those things as long as the content of your message is relevant to them and their situation. I know speakers that are still speaking and being hired to speak in their 80s. They're very relevant. I know other speakers half their age that have not stayed relevant because they fell into the trap of thinking that the material that made them successful would keep them successful. And so I know, Joe, you and I share the same philosophy. You know, there's a certain amount of reinvention, and sometimes reinvention is, is radical, but it can also be incremental. So for me, I've always looked at my material and tried to pare away the stuff that wasn't relevant and add material that was more relevant. And frankly, over the years, I've gotten rid of a good bit of material. I, I don't know about you, but there's some bits I did 10, 15 years ago I look back on and grimace a little bit and just uh, am grateful that audiences extended a certain grace to me uh, in allowing me to interject stuff that I truly believed at the time was wise and has turned out to be far less than that. You speak primarily to business audiences on business topics. How much of your job do you consider the research part of it, the truly not writing a speech, but understanding what's going on with business? I think the research is the key to relevance because I've always based my speaking on principles. And I believe that for a principle to be valid, it has to be true across time, across context, and across culture. I mean, we, we speak to culturally diverse audiences. We speak to audiences of, of different professions and occupations. And certainly we don't want to, to the degree we can avoid it, say something that won't be true in three, five, or, or 20 years. So for me, once I have those principles, they become relevant when I understand how those principles play out in the lives of the audience. That means understanding, not as an insider would, not as someone that goes to work eight hours a day there, but as someone who has thoughtfully considered their culture, their hopes, their fears, their challenges, their stock price. And by the way, stock price can be a gratuitous statement that simply means you, you Googled them online. Or it can be an indication that you understand what's driving that price up or driving that price down and how your material might in some small way uh, help exert a positive uh, uh, influence on the stock price. So to me, the relevance comes from the research. Uh, it, it's combining that specific 
research for that specific client with the broad-based principles that I always talk about in the work that I'm doing. Do you think that your understanding of the client, their business, their industry, and your ability to tailor your presentation to that is what differentiates you? I think it is, only because that's what I'm told. And we do try to ask that question. It's a little heavy-handed, you know, to ask people, well, what makes me different, you know, because they want to say nice things. But I have gotten directly and indirectly the feedback that says, hey, there's a lot of good speakers out there. There's a lot of people that have a great message, great content. We really appreciate it. And that's really the operative term there, appreciated, not just liked, they appreciated that I tailored it to their specific situation. And and really what that communicates is a number of things. One is genuine care. I I didn't take this as a show up, give a speech, take my money. The other thing that it does is, is it also says that you've done the extra work of thinking about how your material applies. I hear speakers say, well, you know, I throw stuff out there. I tell stories and I give them principles and tactics and strategies. It's up to them to figure out how to use them. Well, you know what? Maybe one of the value adds is I've given them a little bit more information, made it crystal clear instead of kind of cloudy and vague. Aha, yeah, that's what we can do. Because, uh, Joe, you and I hear this all the time, and the word of the uh, the last three years for, for my clients has been actionable. You know, we want Monday morning, implementable, doable, actionable ideas. Yeah, they want to feel good. They want to laugh, but they want to be able to act on the information. So to the degree you can help them do that, uh, that is truly a value add. We've talked about what you do that does work. Uh, Mark, have you ever done anything that didn't work? Yeah, it's hard to keep track of all the goofy stuff I've done. Uh, you know, the older you get, the more humble you become because your mistakes accumulate, you know. And uh, what used to be a little stack is suddenly a significant pile. Uh, I have probably, like all of us, uh, overestimated the uh, demand for a particular product in the marketplace. We spent a lot of money on a really nice online learning tool I was very proud of, and it's very slick, and nobody buys it. And that, that to me, is uh, kind of defeats the whole purpose. Um, you know, Thomas Edison, one of my favorite quotes, said he never wanted to invent anything nobody wanted to buy. And so I would say some of my bigger mistakes have been inventing things that nobody wanted to buy. But, hey, I, I had a good buddy that said I should just get over it, let it go. <laughs> What's your biggest challenge right now at this point in your career? Well, I I mentioned the first kind of professional challenge that we all face, and that is how do we stay relevant? The world changes, clients change, audience members change. For me, the second challenge, you know, I'm not real old and I'm not real young. Uh, I am at a point where I have to ask, do I want to just keep giving speeches and do kind of the same thing for the next 25 years I've done for the last 23 years? And certainly I would be happy and blessed to be able to continue to do that. But being economically viable is a pretty low goal. I really want to be doing something that engages me and helps me feel, for lack of a better term, a larger sense of purpose than just, you know, making money. Uh, I got nothing against capitalism. There are some people I've you know, heard say, you know, I'm a speaker. It's a job. It's what I do. It's how I pay the rent. That's fine. I would like to be able to make money and meaning both and not just one or the other. So what I ask is, how can I have a, a bigger positive impact, because in my work on leadership, ultimately, that's what I believe leaders do. They positively influence, whether that's an individual or an organization or a community. Uh, How can I have a a bigger impact and keep the just joy and fun in doing what I do? Because if it stops being fun for you, it stops being fun for the audience, and it stops being fun for your family and friends, too. 
Well, let me stay with that for just a second. What are your criteria for saying no to a job so that you would say, you know, I'm going to pass on that? It's a tricky call sometimes when you feel like saying no because you know it's going to challenge you and you have to work hard, and you feel like saying no because you don't think you're the right fit. If I'm not the right person, I don't want to be in front of the audience. Unequivocally, I think that's the kiss of death professionally, is when you take a job you don't know you can deliver on. And I will say to a client, I'll help you find somebody. I'm not your your person. However, uh, Darla, my wife, has pointed out, I do some of my best work when I'm just a tad stressed, not panicked uh, in, in, in abject terror, but when I'm going, oh, man, I'm really I'm thinking a lot. Because, you know, and I think I just kind of talked myself into the, to the point I want to make, and that is uh, the harder work makes you think more. And I find I probably do my least effective work when I don't think as hard. When I got to think a little harder, when there's an, an external pressure, stressor, I tend to do better work. And so that's, that's when I say no. I also say no if, uh, if it uh, doesn't meet at least two or three of my four criteria, which is interesting profits, interesting people, interesting places, or interesting projects. Because, you know, we get pinged a lot in this business to take on projects that are really directly or indirectly speaking related that take away from our focus and often don't produce any real revenue. So I look at, ideally, at least two or three of those criteria being present before I say yes. Classic question. If you were to give a speaker at any stage in their career one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'd like to suggest two things. Number one is realize that emulation is a great way to learn, but not a great way to earn. We all start in this business by emulating others. That doesn't mean we copy them or copy their material, but we might copy their style or their approach or their business model. I actually believe that's how, as far back as, as, as times when we had apprentices, people learned a craft. You know, you, you watched or worked with a craftsperson, and then you emulated what he or she did. And that's a foundation. But if you don't get to the point where you start doing original work, work that is unique to you in some regard, either how you say it, what you say, how you run your business, your business model, you're going to have a hard time achieving that thing we call staying power. The second thing is is something that transcends uh, all professions, and that is do what you enjoy doing with the people you enjoy doing it with. If you stop doing what you enjoy because you're chasing the hot topic of the day or the hot industry or the hot, hot niche, that you don't have any care, passion, or concern for, you're not going to sustain that. Secondly, pay attention to the relationships, whether they're the, the relationships at home or the relationships in your profession, the NSA family. If you don't spend time with the people who matter, you're going to eventually find that you go to the well one day and it's going to be empty. Joe, normally you and I don't talk after this segment, but uh, you and I were discussing during this segment with him that if he read the grocery list, it would probably sound profound. Yeah, Mark could read the grocery list. Mark could read the phone book, and it would make me want to go tear up my speech and and just start over. And and if you don't believe us, folks, take a listen to this. Mark, when you go to the grocery store, what what would be on your list as your items that you would most want to buy? Typical trip to the grocery store. Well, that would be easy. Beer, beer, and beer. Well, no, let me be more specific. A pale ale... Uh, a nice uh, stout and perhaps a porter, but those would be the three. 
this month on Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson is joining us again, and you are watching a guy by the name of Scott Ginsburg, and all of the folks we're profiling, or most of the folks that we're profiling on this segment, Jane, are people that we really don't know well or haven't heard of, but there's a reason why a lot of people would know Scott if they saw him in the hallway. He is known for being the guy who wears around the name tag, hello, my name is Scott. And so I've seen him wearing at conventions, I think we were at the book convention, a great big giant name tag. He has built a business on that. And we're going to talk to him about how he did it and why he is one to watch. 3,179 days ago, nine and a half years, I'm a junior in college. I'm at an event where they give you a name tag. You go to the back door at the end of the event, everybody, you know, they, they rip it off. I look in the trash can and I see a bunch of name tags. This was the entrepreneurial moment of truth that most people screw up. I looked in the trash can and said, why do I have to do it that way? And I thought, I'm, uh, what the heck? I'm going to leave my name tag on. And I just did just because my brain is wired to always ask the question, what could I do in this exact moment to be exactly the opposite of everybody else? And I left it on and people were just friendly and all these cute girls were saying hi to me. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. So I just said, that's it. I am wearing a name tag 24-7. Uh, and then once I got a tattoo, that was pretty much the end of it. <laughs> Tell us about the tattoo. Okay, so... Um, Obviously, you can't see it, but um, throughout the conference that I've been here, people just come up to me and say, dude, is the tattoo real? And yes, uh, I, when I say I wear a name tag 24-7, I'm not kidding. I'm a swimmer. I'm, I do yoga, so I'm shirtless a lot. You better believe that name tag's on there. And I started waxing, which I think is helpful. And here, I know you can't see it, but there it is. There's the name tag. And it looks exactly like the real one. And I have that for uh, one very specific reason. I am insane. No, I have it because uh, it's commitment. You know, I talk about being approachable. It doesn't, um, it doesn't happen unless you're committed to it. And certainly I, you could say I, I should be committed for doing that. Um, and maybe I've taken the whole personal branding thing, you know, too literally. <laughs> you know, the question Most is... Most guys would just get a puppy. Yeah, they, they probably. Uh, <laughs> name, uh, puppies are for losers. So, uh, you know, the question people have to ask themselves is, um, is your commitment unquestionable? And if it's not, how much money is that losing you? Scott, describe year one of your speaking career. 2001. I'm a senior in college at Miami University, and I write my very first book. I had no idea what the heck I was doing, but I got the book done, and when I graduated from college, I had the book in my hand, I'd started my company, and I thought, I'm gonna be a writer, I'm gonna be a speaker. And that was probably as far as I got initially, but then what happened is, once the book was out, apparently if you have a book, people think you're smart, which is great. So, uh, when you're 22 years old, no one's gonna listen to you, but if you have a book, they might. So I started giving Rotary Club, you know, rubber chicken circuit kind of stuff, and uh, that was for the first few months. And I uh, was also blessed with some uh, fantastic press, uh, USA Today, CNN, uh, Wake Up Springfield, all that kind of good stuff. And it just, it kind of blew up for about 12 months of nonstop media stuff, which led to like interviews and speaking, and uh, you know, kind of got involved with NSA and this basically 12 month stretch of that first year and it was um, it was a whirlwind man it was crazy and uh, yeah I love it <laughs> very cool very cool so you've hit new levels flashpoints mm. several times in your speaking career yeah. what do you, what would you attribute you know a little takeoff mm -hmm. happening I'll share with you a couple key flashpoints that 
uh, were exponentially valuable to my position as a writer and a speaker. Number one was having my book. As I said, um, people think you're smart if you have a book. So I had that immediately expertise. It was a book written about name tags. So I immediately, according to the Washington Post, was the world's expert on name tags. Sweet. You got to be an expert on something. So there was that, um, the book. What happened next was I got involved with NSA, one of the smartest things I ever did in my career. And I'm not just kissing butt because I'm on VOE. It was it was awesome. Uh, I got involved with people like uh, Chef Hyken, Jeffrey Gittimer, uh, Sam Silverstein, and they shared their wisdom and experience with me and, and were very cool to um, take me under their wings on different levels, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I was 23 years old and had no idea what the hell I was doing. Uh, the next flashpoint was when I made the decision that I wasn't a speaker. None of us are speakers. None of us are writers. None of us are consultants. We are thought leaders. I had a scratch cornea one night, and uh, when you have a scratch cornea, you can't do anything. You have to sit there, and you have a patch, and you do nothing. So I did have 30 hours of NSA tapes in a box, and I'm like, all right, I can listen to tapes. So this became that next uh, flashpoint. I'm sitting there like a pirate, and, uh, and I'm listening to all these tapes, and I'm hearing all these, these key ideas about speaking and writing, and I basically learned that, number one, if all you do is speak, you don't have a business. Number two... If all you do is speak, you're putting yourself in a box and you're limiting the value that you provide. And I realized, oh my God, speaking is something I do and that delivers the value of my wisdom as does writing and video and all the other mediums through which I share this expertise. I'm a thinker, man. That, that's what we all are. There, you know, in terms of writing, like there's no writer's block, it's thinker's block. Okay, if you're, if you're a bad writer, it's, you're a bad thinker. Uh, if you're not doing good as a speaker, it's because you need to think more. That was the secret, and which became this huge flashpoint that I'll never forget. It's scratch your cornea, change your business. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't recommend that for everyone. Fine. So I know you because you're the name tag guy. You wear the big name tag, and people have, uh, hello, my name is Scott, has become your brand. How important has picking a lane and focus been to your business? Picking a lane isn't important. It's essential. It's the only thing you need to remember to do, if anything, other than writing, you know, writings on the content development side, on the, um, on the business side, because this is a business, picking a lane is what you have to do. And I, I actually didn't pick a lane. The lane was picked for me. That's what I believe is um, the walkers don't choose the path. It's the other way around. Now, my lane, my niche is approachability. That's it. That's the only thing I know anything about. That's all I ever speak about. That's the only word I ever claim to be an expert on. Uh, that being said, um, we're, we're, you know, we're here in Phoenix for the conference. That word came years ago when we were here for a different conference. And, you know, my first book was out and it was called Hello, My Name is Scott. Little did I know it wasn't a book. It was a brand. So that became my brand, and then when I started to develop the content, I knew there was something bigger. I mean, what is a name tag a symbol of? It's about being approachable. So I made the decision, that's the word. Um, uh, the next book I wrote was The Power of Approachability, knowing that that would become the school of thought. And I'll never forget, I was, like in my, I was living in my parents' basement, which is, I, I spent two years, eight months, and 29 days living in my parents' basement when I started my company. <laughs> I, I was working uh, nights and weekends as a valley parker at the Ritz-Carlton when I would crash, I mean, park people's cars. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I'm working two jobs, trying to make it as a speaker. And like I said, I'll never forget looking through, I think it was Sanborn's year when he did the 
eloquence to the power of the X to the whatever the heck it was, and and which I thought was great. I, I know people give him a hard time. I thought that was awesome. And there was the uh, not not the bylaws, but like the the requirements of a professional speaker from the website. And one of them said, you know, a, you know, a successful speaker is someone who has developed a unique school of thought. That I mean, talk about a flashpoint. That blew me away, and I realized, you know, of course I'm a thought leader, but my school of thought is approachability. And I knew that the secret was to know everything about that word. If you Google that word, I'll come up before anybody out of three million hits. And I, I think the challenge for everyone is to figure out what word do you own. And it's not like leadership. Everybody speaks on leadership. Leadership's like Moby Dick. You could say leadership is anything. You need to pick your word. You know, Jane, the wealthy speaker, that's what you do, and, and identify what it means to be wealthy. And you think of the different speakers that have their word that they own. If you can create that one word equity, that becomes your focus. Like Vince, speed. Bam, you know that word right away. If you can figure out what your word is, that's your focus, that's your lane, and your business will never be the same again. You are a writing madman. I've seen your workspace, and it is, well, it's it, it, it's a thought leader's emporium. I mean, you're out there, mm. you're creating all the time. Yes. So talk a little bit about how much you write and how that benefits your business. I write for four to seven hours a day. When I share that with people, they usually look at me like I'm crazy, which I am. And then they're like, well, how do you find the time to write every day? And I'll say, how do you lose the time to write? Or they'll say, wow, you write all day. I mean, you know, how, how do you do that all day? I'm like, dude, that's my occupation. I'm a writer. That's what I do. What do you do all day? Update your website? Print out your one sheet? No. <laughs> Talk to bureaus? We're, we're, we need to be writing every day. So I spend four to seven hours a day writing. I, I clock in every morning at 5 a.m. When I'm on the road, four. Most of the time, five. And that's what I do. I'm a writer. That's that's what I spend a majority of my time on. Now, four to seven hours a day writing isn't that much when you're working 14. It's only about half the day. <laughs> that in mind, I, for the people right now that are just jaws have dropped, my challenge is not for people to write seven hours a day. I started writing, you know, in 2001 with my first book, 15 minutes a day. And if you do the math, that's exactly one one hundredth of your day, 1,440 minutes, 15 minutes a day. Anybody can do that. And I went from 15 minutes a day to seven hours. So that's what I structure most of my day around is what am I going to write? And my challenge for people is to get a little sticky note and put it on your laptop or in your office and just have the, the following question. What did you write today? It doesn't have to be that much. It could be one single line of truth but if that opens up a wormhole in your expertise that changes everything, then it was worth it. I spend my days writing. That's what I do. And I don't just, and when I say writing, I think this is a key uh, distinction. That doesn't mean only, you know, typing on a keyboard or physically handwriting. Writing is physically typing. Writing is on a flip chart. Writing is doing a mind map. Writing is reading a book and making notes of how you can improve something that the author said. Writing is, as George Carlin said, casting about for material. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be out in the world. We can't just sit in our living room all day uh, because we're not relevant. we got to be out in the world, and we need to be observing and looking at what happens and freezing the moment and taking that through the filter of our expertise. That's the way you got to structure your day.
Okay, so let's go back to writing. Let's talk really quickly about how you monetize that. Okay. Four to seven hours a day translates into monetization in a few ways. Number one, books. I've written eight books, although by the time this comes out, probably 15, I don't know. Um, there's that. Monetization also comes from uh, one of my websites called Nametag TV, which is an online video learning site that has three-minute modules. That is the word right there people need to write down, module. We're not writing articles. We're not writing blog posts, speeches. It's a module. It is an uncategorized chunk of creative material. So the modules on Nametag TV are monetized in as much as creating customized video learning systems for my clients. The next way it's monetized is obviously through speaking. So everything, I mean, everything I know is written down somewhere. People need to ask themselves, is everything you know written down somewhere? If it's not, write it down. Because if you don't write it down, it never happened. So it's monetized in the speech way. So I'm creating modules that I'm delivering through workshops and presentations and staff trainings. The last way it's monetized is through one-on-one -on -one work. Um, I don't call it coaching. I don't call it consulting. I have a service called Rent Scott's Brain. Because, frankly, consulting, coaching, no one knows what the heck any of that stuff really means. So I monetize it by building a, a coaching system that I've written out that people can plug themselves in. Those are the four ways I monetize writing. So let's just walk our talk here and, and talk about something that you do. There's a call to action mm. at the end of everything you do, at sure. the end of your blog postings, right. at the end of your sessions. What can people do if they are interested in learning more about writing? The number one mistake made by all thought leaders is lack of actionability. Now, as I said, I talk about being approachable. Well, underneath the umbrella of approachable is being actionable, other abuls. Uh, so you need to be actionable in all the messages that you deliver, speech, writing, even an interview like this. At the end of it, what are you going to do to get people to take action. You have to combine, as Jeffrey Gittimer taught me, outreach with attraction. So I'm going to say something right now, and I want you to listen to what I'm about to say because I'm going to prove what I just said. So pretend I didn't just say that. It's the end of the interview, and I always do this, every speech, every everything. Let me suggest this. If you would like a copy of the list called Nine Ways to Become a Better Writer Tomorrow, send an email to me and you get the list for free pause and that's a call to action what I just did so if you want the list I'm telling you right now I'll, I'll send it to you then what happens is I personally reply back to you and then you have to log into my website which is free except the email so I guess it's not free and you become part of my permission asset and a fan forever that is a call to action let's give your what let's give your email address Scott at hello my name is Scott.com and I, I see you guys laughing at my, my email address. The question is, who's laughing at your email address? <laughs> Each month at this time, we visit with Renee Godefroy. Renee is the host of our segment, Offstage, in which we feature people who are doing good works in their time when they're not speaking. But you may remember when you met Renee in September that he is from Haiti. And in light of the recent Haitian earthquake, we thought this month we would take some time in this segment to visit with Renee and then discuss how we can all help benefit the folks who are suffering in Haiti. Renee, my first question for you is, you have told us in the past that you grew up in extreme poverty. Why is it that poverty is so high in Haiti, which is only going to increase the suffering there? There are several reasons why Haiti is so poor. A few of them is we have a big erosion problem in the country. Out of necessity, people are having to cut down the trees to make 
charcoal to cook food. And uh, as a result of that, erosion is a huge problem for the country. Another reason also, we are a society of consumers. We don't produce much of anything. We import everything. Then you look at the local farmers, they have to walk away from the farms because they cannot compete with the prices being offered from food imported from, let's say, China, Taiwan, and some of the other countries. We also have the politicians in the country. They don't have the interests of the people at heart. It's all about themselves. They want to get rich quick as soon as they get in power. And there's no accountability. There's no one to really hold them accountable for, for their actions. The people of Haiti are smart people and they are hardworking people but they don't have tools. It's just for lack of resources that the people cannot really develop themselves, particularly the young people in uh, uh, the country. Let me ask you, what have you been able to learn about your own family members and friends down there? And I know that you've also been very active with an orphanage down there. What do you know about the safety of your friends and family and the orphans that you've helped care for? The orphanage I support in Haiti is okay. They are not at the center of Port-au-Prince. All 23 kids are just fine. Now, there's a food shortage in uh, some of the cities outside of Port-au-Prince and villages because Port-au-Prince was the center, the distribution center, and the roads are badly damaged. There's not much transportation. And so food prices went up as much as 300%. So there's a food crisis in not just in Port-au-Prince, but in other cities and villages outside of Port-au-Prince. My family is okay. Most of them were in the village. Uh, Those that were in Port-au-Prince, they are just fine. I lost a few friends. The neighborhood where I was a kid is completely gone. So I lost some friends, but as a whole, everybody, thank God, everybody's okay. My family is okay, but the situation is not okay. It's really, really deplorable in the country. Well, you and I talked before we went on the air a little bit. What are some of your thoughts about how members of the National Speakers Association and the Global Federation can give back and help? Well, first of all, let me say thank you to America and thank you to Americans, because you were there so fast. Many Americans risked their lives to save Haitian lives. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for your kindness and your compassion. Now, here's how you can help. Uh, First of all, you can accept a low fee. Uh, For example, if the client does not have your fee, they have a small budget, you might want to accept it and give the money to the American Red Cross or uh, whatever organization that you support on behalf of Haiti. You can mention uh, the devastation in your speech if you can, or you can uh, maybe kind of like work something in one of your stories in the presentation so that you can raise awareness for Haiti. You can also go to the country if you want to go down there and help and make a difference. You can encourage your friends and family members to go whatever you can do. I tell you what, it's going to take many 
many, many years to rebuild the country. And yes, we need a lot of help. So whatever you can do in your own capacity would be greatly appreciated. So on behalf of the Haitians, I want to say thank you in advance for whatever you do. And I can even share with you firsthand experience five years after Hurricane Katrina here in New Orleans. It takes a long time to rebuild. So your efforts, Renee, are appreciated. And to all of our members around the world, we appreciate your efforts in helping to rebuild and help the people of Haiti. It's time to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts has a new list of little steps you can take to advance your product development, social media writing, and business strategy as we break big tasks into little actionable items in If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there is one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to create and host a teleseminar or webinar that delivers great value to your clients. You can promote a teleseminar or webinar to a broad range of individual clients, as we do to financial professionals around the world, or you can create and deliver in-house programs for a corporation or association. Our offering of teleseminars and webinars has evolved over time, as yours will too. First, we charged money for these events. Then we decided to offer some for free, just as a way to provide value to our clients and promote some of our other offerings. We've now gone back to charging for our webinars and teleseminars, and they've become a nice revenue source for us. And if we see a slow month of speaking on the horizon, which doesn't happen very often, luckily, we can promote a teleseminar or webinar and get a nice turnout within three to four weeks. And you don't always have to be the guest on your event. You can tap into the knowledge base of other experts, like other NSA members, from whom your clients will benefit. In this case, I think an interview format is best. You interview your guests to draw out their expertise. And with an interview format, there's a little more vocal variety, and everyone on the call is reminded that you are the person making this happen. Here are two ways to make more money with teleseminars and webinars. First, offer more than just the event. Put together a packet of related information, books, CDs, reports, etc. Your clients will see the added value that you provide and be willing to pay you a bit more for the program. In our case, I've written a number of reports that are easy to add to such a package. I also interview many clients and other experts from my internet-based radio show, which I'll be covering in my next segment for VOE. Of course, I record those interviews and now have many teaching tools to include as value-added items. Oh, and by the way, we now deliver all of these value-added items digitally, so there's no cost of sale to us to get these items to our clients, and they get them quickly. A second way to make more money with these teaching events is by charging more money for a conference room line than an individual line. This can be a huge moneymaker. It has been for us, depending on your niche. Just tell your clients that they can fill a conference room full of people for the conference room price. We usually charge about 50% more than the individual registration fee. Most of our teleseminars and webinars are made up of about 50% individual lines and 50% conference room lines. Okay, I know what you're wondering. How do we offer two types of lines? Is there a certain type of technology you need to do this? No, that's the beauty. They log into the event exactly the same way. Here's what we found. If you overprice your conference room fee, people will cheat and just pay the individual fee for their group. But if you price it fairly, then they will be honest about paying what you ask. It's simply amazing. 
So it's very important to the maintenance and growth of your business when you find multiple ways to interact with your clients and deliver value to them. Teleseminars or webinars are an easy and effective way to do this. In the next issue of Voices of Experience, I'm going to talk to you about using an internet-based radio show to deliver great value and generate great revenue. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. Sooner or later, we had to address the issue of feedback. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm going to say next, because it's critically important and often misunderstood. The wrong kind of feedback at the wrong time will kill the creative process. Never getting feedback will stunt your creativity. Got it? To save you the trouble of backing up the recording, I'll say it again. The wrong kind of feedback at the wrong time will kill the creative process. Never getting feedback will stunt your creativity. Suggestion. Need a reason to go to the bookstore and want to bolster your writing confidence? Every writer should buy, read, mark up, and read again Annie Lamont's classic Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life. Any writing book list will have this book on it because it's full of truth and is so beautifully written. So what's a writer to do? You want feedback because you know it's the only way you can get better, and you're afraid of getting feedback because of what someone might say. As the King of Siam said, it's a puzzlement. Like any writing dilemma, we can solve this. First, figure out who you're going to ask. For many reasons, too many to list here, I wouldn't recommend you go to your spouse first. What you want is a friend who cares enough to follow your lead as well as being honest enough to tell you a hard truth if you really need to hear it. They also need to be someone whose writing you admire. Next, figure out what you want or need to know at this point. When I sent out my first batch of essays for Simple Encounters, my only question was, after reading these, would you be eager to read more? You could ask, does the story flow? Or, does this piece sound like me? Or does it represent my style from the platform? You are not asking for grammar corrections. That comes later from a different source. Since only writing will make you a better writer, take a piece you've worked on for a while, keyboarded up manuscript style, one-inch margins, double-spaced, simple 12-point fonts, spell check it one more time, and mentally pick a first reader. Think of what feedback you want from this person, write up your questions, and ask for a favor. Would you read a piece I've been working on and give me some feedback? It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Ford Sakes here, and my quick strategy segments for VOE are related to how you can monetize your social media networking efforts to grow your business. Now, the first social media site that I want to focus on is the video sharing site, youtube.com. Now, if you're new to YouTube, go get your channel, which is to say go sign up for your account because your account name is your channel name, so select it wisely. Now, there are several other video sharing sites, but master YouTube first. Then you can leverage your efforts on other video sharing sites and use services like TubeMogul, which is T-U-B-E-M-O-G-U-L.com for starters. 
share value-added content, and watch your business grow. The second important social media site that I want to discuss is the community site, Facebook.com. Now, don't laugh. I know that most of you listening by now already have your Facebook account set up. If not, go join the other 200 million people and get with the program. After you set your Facebook account up, make sure you set up a Facebook fan page and join groups that focus around your subjects of interest. Start by visiting and listening and just exploring. It's about participation, community, and networking. Remember to set your privacy settings accordingly and don't abuse your friends with constant promotions about your latest book or event. You'll monetize your efforts once you participate in building real connections and encouraging relevant dialogue. Now, the third important social media site is focused around professional networking, and of course, that's the site LinkedIn.com. Again, get your account, or if you already have your account, go back and make sure your profile is set up, and then invest in creating a network of professionals that can help you make new contacts. Sure, you can add your NSA buddies. I've added mine. But you should think beyond that to the types of clients you want to reach. Now, for example, one of my clients wanted to reach the CEO of a top name brand company, and traditional methods had failed. I sent a LinkedIn invitation to connect with him, and within 15 minutes was accepted into the CEO's inner circle. Then I was able to start a dialogue that is now leading to a multi-million dollar contract. The fourth important social media site would be your very own blog, preferably a WordPress blog because of the popularity and the many add-ons that are available for syndication and ease of use. And finally, the fifth important social media site would be your microblogging site, Twitter.com. Now sure, you probably have an account on Twitter too, but how effective is it? A great source is the book by Joel Calm called Twitter Power. That's all we have time for this issue. I'm Ford Sakes from PrimeConcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hey, Mike Rayburn here with you again. And if you remember last month, we talked about how every career, product, organization, and even relationship follows the same life cycle. In the beginning, it's a race to become profitable. Then hopefully, profitability and big success. Then a peak. And then, even though you're doing exactly what has always worked, a decline. And then it's a phenomenon called the sigmoid curve. I also left you with the question, what do you do if you've peaked and begun to decline? What do you do if your product is no longer exciting and new? What do you do if your once passionate relationship has become dull and ordinary? Or better yet, how do you avoid tapering off at all? The answer is this, and it's the same in all cases. Reinvent. As speakers, reinvent. Become relevant again. Try something new. Completely rewrite your keynote. Write the best-selling book you've talked about. Try a different market or apply your expertise to a new category of clientele. Create some big press event involving your career. Move from speaking to coaching. There are a lot of examples. I guarantee if you've been successful for more than a few years, you've reinvented yourself a number of times. We see this in products and companies all the time. Ritz crackers became Ritz bits. Apple computers became just Apple. And, of course, Arthur Anderson had to become Accenture. A number of years ago, Bill Gates did this with Microsoft, totally refocusing his entire company toward the Internet. 
In the past, I have reinvented by moving from playing bars to college market and later to the corporate market, by focusing completely on comedy, by doing a three-month-long national press event, by joining NSA and turning my program into a keynote. And I can tell you, I am deep in the process of reinventing as we speak because I don't want to get to the point of decline before I start. And finally, as I said, the time to begin reinventing is when things are still going great and thus to do it by design rather than out of necessity once you're too far in decline. Thanks a lot. Good luck. And I'll be back with you next month. For those of you who are active on Facebook, please make sure you sign up for our Voices of Experience Facebook fan page where you can give us feedback and suggestions for upcoming shows, guests and segments. It's March, and I just went online and purchased my airline ticket so I can fly down to Orlando this summer for the NSA National Convention. And joining me now is convention chair Mark Mayberry. Mark, uh, in the early stages, I understand that you're going to have a little bit fun this year on the Friday night before the conference starts. Tell me about it. Jared, you started it last year with a starfish on Friday night, and it was just such a huge success. It was genius, wasn't it? That, that was pure genius. Thanks, thanks. Uh, Mayfield wants to take all the credit for it, of course. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so we wanted to do something that was that great, maybe even better, but something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did such a great thing last year. So what we're going to do this year is something called NSA's Got Talent. Ooh, tell me about this. Well, this is something that we've found is that in each chapter, there's people that have incredible talents off the stage. They may be a great pianist. They may be able to uh, do a bunch of juggling. They may uh, do things that you don't normally see during the presentations. So we're not quite sure what theme. We've we've turned this over to Mark Mayfield, who's going to be the host of the evening, and will actually coordinate the whole thing. But uh, So we're not quite sure how it'll shake out, but I guarantee you one thing, it'll be fun. Uh, last year, it was kind of done just on a last-minute thing. This year, we're going to have some planning. As you know, you had some problems with the, the lighting and everything else. But we're It gonna... was radio. We didn't need lights. <laughs> That's very true. So what we're asking the members to do is to sneak around your chapters and to find the people that have the talent. Or if you're just not bashful at all and you have this talent, you'd like to possibly get on stage on Friday night. Send me an email. That's mark at markmayberry.com. That's M-A-R-K at M-A-R-K-M-A-Y-B-E-R-R-Y dot com. And let me know what your talent is or somebody else within the chapter. And you'll have a shot at getting on stage. And this will be a night that... uh, One thing that I heard from reading the evaluations, there's so many people that really didn't know about last Friday, uh, the Friday night that you did. And we want to make sure that we publicize it this time, and we're going to have a room full of people, and it's going to be a night that you won't forget. So, folks, when you book your airline tickets, you want to arrive July 16th, which is the Friday night. The convention actually begins the next day, but it's worth getting there a day ahead of time. And certainly, if you have talent, we want to hear from you. Absolutely. Lindsay Adams, CSP, the president of the Global Speakers Federation, is back with us. And I am embarrassed, Lindsay, I'll tell you right off the bat, that I didn't know about your Where in the World feature on the website. Tell me, tell the world about this, because this is amazing. Jared, you're, you're a loser. Uh, thank you. You're not the first to tell me, but we've edited out all the others. Somehow that one, Rocky, missed editing out. <laughs> so you know, the Where in the World feature is a brilliant tool that we have available on our website. 
Uh, and basically what you do is you go on, you have your own account, uh, you fill in your details, and you build a profile. And this is um, the engine room for this is eSpeakers, who are a long-term sponsor of the Federation. Sure, and, and, and gazillions of speakers, and that's a technical term, are already part of eSpeakers. Indeed, and a you know, brilliant service. But here's the deal. You put in uh, your calendar into where in the world, and then... Uh, people can track where you are and you can track where other speakers are. Now, I'm going to give you, for example, I was in Singapore uh, about 12 months ago speaking at a conference and when I got there, I looked on the conference program and discovered that Rebecca Morgan from the NSA was on the same program. I didn't even know she was going to be in town. That was before I understood about the power of where in the world. Now, wherever I'm traveling internationally and or locally, I check where in the world to see what other speakers are going to be in the same location at the same time. I contact them and make an effort to meet up, coffee, chat, whatever. How often are you also finding, or some of the other folks using this, finding that it also results in additional additional paid engagements uh, while you're traveling the world? Uh, you know, that, it's a funny thing you say. That That is a brilliant side product of this, that uh, when you put down where you are in the world, your clients... Uh, and other speakers go, oh, actually, there's an opportunity here you want to look into. And, and it's amazing what happens. I've, I've been, I put my program in for Singapore, picked up a job in Hong Kong, go figure, um, simply because of my presence somewhere in the world. And, you know, serious professionals understand that making the right connection is the best way to do business. Connecting with, with other speakers is a good thing for business. So... Where do I go to sign up? Okay, you go to the homepage, globalspeakersfederation.com. Click on the Where in the World link, and you're in. If I'm going to be a speaking star, I'll have to fly first class. I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Because everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm going to be a speaking star. Okay, speaking stars, it's time to return to our live performance from A Night of a Thousand Starfish. Record it live at the NSA convention. Now, during the show, a dozen humorists all took a shot at telling their own twisted version of the infamous starfish story. While some humorists wore costumes and others portrayed characters, David Glickman appeared on stage with his signature keyboard. All was going well until the David Glickman dancers started messing with our star while he tried to perform. Let's pick up the story, record it live. Ladies and gentlemen, the song stylings of David Glickman. The Starfish Story Medley. The Starfish Story Medley. When you wish upon a starfish, makes no difference. Who you are, wish for anything your heart desires will come to you. Like 
the boy who walked the beach, saw all these starfish in his reach, and he knew just what to do to help your speech. Waste of time, that's what the old man said. Some guy who's almost dead tried to dissuade him. You may think you're having fun, but you won't make a different son. Yes, I did for just that one. Shut up, we're done. It's a medley, not yet. <laughs> Here's a story of a lovely starfish who was stuck there lying helpless on the beach. Hundreds more were lying there beside him. Could there be a lesson here waiting to teach? Then one day this young ambitious little fella saw them stranded and he went and had this hunch that although he could never save them all now that one by one he still could go and save a bunch go save a bunch go save a bunch that's the way he strategized to save a bunch gentlemen, the David Glickman Dancers. One singular old starfish lying there upon the sand. <laughs> One singular old starfish it's there right in my hand. <laughs> One starfish. <laughs> there we go. One starfish tossed in the ocean may seem real small. But for that one stupid starfish, it's a windfall. Let's let it go. One singular old starfish lying there like in a trance. Till my footsteps did advance my chance glance. Ooh, sigh. Let there be no mistake now. Cause of difference I could make now for that one. The David Glickman Dancers. Thank you. So we just heard David Glickman 
and he is, of course, sitting here. So it's time for us to, to talk about you in front of you uh, <laughs> with Ryan Culberson. Uh, your thoughts on, on the musical stylings uh, of this young lad. Well, clearly David was the weakest of all the people. <laughs> on the, uh, on the, and so I'd like to sort of define why that was. Um, now, here's, here's what's brilliant about David, and I told him this after the event, is that David uh, reminds me of Meatloaf, and let me explain. <laughs> It's um, there's a there's a comfort level in the way his material comes across. Um, he's not he he and I neither one tend to be too edgy in the way that we use humor, but his his music and his lyrics and the way he performs is like a, is like a comfortable pair of shoes. It just puts me in a place of humor and laughter, but also just comfort and contentment. And um, it, it, there's a there's a jazziness to it. There's a there's a rhythm to it. And, and I think, again, it goes back to what we said about Vinnie Varelli. There's, there's a construct to it. It's taking a, a song or a melody that we know and then adding the, the words to make that funny on two levels in the way that the song is written, but also hearkening back to the original song. Well, one of the things the audience couldn't see that generated a lot of laughs was you had four dancers behind you in top hats. Uh, they were not skilled dancers, only Molly Cox was. And they put a hat on your head and it kept falling off at least a dozen times. And every time you thought it was gonna stay in your head, it fell off again. How easy or how hard was it to use that in your bit since it was spontaneous? Well, the key is the show must go on. So. I had to find a way to keep going. I actually started losing uh, my composure in a good way. I, I was laughing, and I don't know how much of that will be edited out of what they're hearing, but uh, the more an audience can see the performers losing it. I mean, Saturday Night Live has always, some of their best sketches are when the performers can't hold it in anymore. The audience love to see this vulnerability. They love it. Now, the side benefit is, if this were to be a piece I was to ever use again, that I'd work that in. I'd make the mistakes happen again. I'd make the hat keep falling off. It wasn't playing this time, but it'd be playing the next time because we saw how much the laughs were. Well, you're always brilliant when you do music. The only thing I could add to it was probably a little bit more cowbell would be nice. <laughs> NSA President and Chief Imagineer Phil Van Hooser is here with me, and Phil, from what I can tell, uh, this far into your presidential year, you've probably racked up just a gazillion, and that's a technical term, uh, frequent flyer miles. You're probably platinum, and then you've gone above that probably to the uh, plutonium level where eventually you just melt down from all the traveling. <laughs> Well, thanks, Jared, for those encouraging words. I know I've got something to look forward to now. Well, you know, I may be exaggerating about the melting down, but the fact is you have been on the road a lot. You've circled the, the globe. Uh, where have you been in all of your travels? To date, I have visited almost 30 of the NSA chapters as NSA president, as well as several of the conventions hosted by our Global Speakers Federation colleagues in Germany and in England, Canada, Holland, South Africa, Australia, Malaysia, and Singapore. So uh, that means also a lot of frequent flyer peanuts to go along with that. <laughs> Has it been worth it? Absolutely. The generosity and hospitality of our NSA chapter members, along with that of our international brothers and sisters, has been nothing short of amazing. During these visits and interactions, I've been reminded again and again just how much speaking talent there is scattered around the world. 
that awareness alone has invigorated me, and it makes me want to see NSA and all of our members get better. Okay, so let's go beyond all of this, because in all of these places, you must have a ton of takeaways. But if I asked you to narrow it down, what would you say the biggest aha moment was? Well, I'm sure there have been many. How can you be exposed to new people, places, ideas without having your mind expanded? But if I had to narrow it down to just one, I think that one aha moment for me might be this. In my very first international visit, I traveled to Germany to participate in the German Speakers Association 2009 convention. For three days, I met and interacted with colleagues from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, as well as France, Holland, Italy, and and so on. Despite the fact that we spoke different languages and presented with different accents, every person I met shared the common goal of connecting with their audiences and sharing information that would make a real difference in their life experiences. I came away amazed by the realization that NSA founder Cavett Robert and those original 39 members of the National Speakers Association were absolutely right. The professional speaking pie continues to get bigger and better for all of us as it encompasses the diversity and flavor of its domestic and international ingredients. Jared, I truly believe that we are really blessed to be a part of what I consider to be the greatest industry on earth. I love this time of year. Down here in New Orleans, we've already celebrated Mardi Gras. The flowers are blooming and spring is in the air, even though it doesn't officially begin until March 20th. I hope your spring is a beautiful time of renewal. Spring is a great time to head into the great outdoors, set up a chair under a tree, and spend some quality time thinking about what you might do to take your speaking career to the next level. All you have to do is open your mind to the endless possibilities and imagine. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.